Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we go to the places where you have those mastermind moments, those unexpected conversations that can change your life or at least give you a really good aha moment that reveals something you've been excited to discover, whether you realized it or not. And what do you hear in the background? You hear birds chirping, you hear cars driving by, you hear ambient noise from the next table, or sometimes it sounds like you're hearing a podcast that's being broadcast from the high-tech balcony in beautiful Las Vegas, where I live under the supervision of my two princesses. That's where we are today. We are excited to have with us today somebody named Carol Sanford, who I've been excited to have on the show for quite some time. And what Carol's going to share with us is about abandoning your goals. That's right, abandoning your goals. Carol is a best-selling, award-winning author, business educator, summer producer, podcaster, and designer of membership communities. Her books are required readings in multiple departments from Stanford to Harvard. For 40 years, she's collaborated with leaders to develop people and businesses to express their singular capabilities. Carol's clients include companies like Colgate, DuPont, and 7th Generation. Google's Innovation Lab uses her responsible business framework. Learn more at her website, which is at carolsanford.com. And you can also check out the Business Second Opinion podcast. That's the official version. Carol Sanford, come on in. The weather's fine. Hello. Thank you. I love this balcony. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... I read off your official bio. So impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here in your presence, and this is my show. So what I'll, we want to do. I'll grade you at the end and let you know. All right. <laughs> okay. That sounds great. Uh, now, what I want to do here is before we dive into this whole concept of abandoning your goals and some of the other aspects you want to cover with us today. You gave us a nice little outline in the green room. What I want to do is just sort of take a step back and tell us in your own words a bit about your journey, what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Uh, well, I have to first say I don't believe in passion, so that should give us a good start. But I can tell you how I got to that. Um, I had a, a dual kind of input when I was a child, one from a father who was 
uh, terribly racist, but quite mean, a judge, and one from a grandfather who was part Mohawk and raised in a Native American reservation who helped me understand why in the world and how my father got to who he was. Uh, what that means is he taught me a lot about how to see the beyond what was on the surface, beyond what it was that we set as targets for how much money we wanted to make, career, how famous we wanted to be, all those things, and said, what we have to do is see your father as uh, in terms of the essence of who he is. Even, and I was six years old when he introduced that idea to me and said, we're going to look at it as you go up who you are. Now, that changed what I looked for in life. And it changed uh, how I even evaluated my own work. And in fact, along the way, I love your sense of humor because along the way, one of the things I did was be part of an improvisational theater group and a stand-up comic, right? <laughs> right on the spot. Think about how you can be present with what's going on in a way that lifts it up. Now, believe it or not, that whole thought about being a stand-up comic and a improvisational theater was a, a very much the way my grandfather taught me to view the world, which was like be present in the present moment, question things, don't assume what people tell you is right. Don't uh, adopt anything your parents say, your teachers say, your church say, without examining it. And the only way you can do that is be fully present. So if I look at where I am today, I look forward to being with you today because I get to practice being present because I know how good you are, even though I teach you, I listen to your shows. Learning to do that is learning to see the singularity, which was a word you used and I often use, of who people are, what it is they are seeking to be in the world, not so much their goals, but who they are. That's kind of a summary of how I got where I am. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, what I want to do here is let's begin by defining our terms. Abandoning your goals. Well, tell me about that. And I know this has to do with goal setting and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what, why do you call your project abandoning your goals? That's, I like where you're going with it. I like the idea of the contrarian approach to it or the provo provocation approach to it because they say, well, never abandon your goals. Well, it sounds I, like you're urging us to do that. Am I right? Or am I'm I missing actually, something? No, no, you're, you're not far off. I, uh, that phrase I used a couple of times when I was speaking and it kind of stuck with me and people passed it along. And what it really means is abandon your goals as the North Star or as the guiding force for you, who you are, because uh, we become, you know, and you have a lot of young people and entrepreneurs and people who listen to you, and they're always told to have passion. And I commented on I'm not much of a fan of that. All right. And the reason that's related to this abandon your goals, which is, uh, if in another word for it would be become unattached to your goals. And that doesn't mean not to care about what you want to create in the world and what you want to do, but we get very attached 
and then we become passionate and then we become, and by the way, defining the word passion comes from the same root as pain. They are exactly the same root. And who in the world wants to build up a life of pain? I have worked with entrepreneurs in universities and corporations for years. And one of the things I noticed is those who become attached to their goals end up in a lot of pain. They, their emotions go up and down with whether something's working or not working. What I want and believe that and that I see in the world when young entrepreneurs and as we get older can still do the same thing is not be attached to results, but look more at what the effects are we're seeking to be and create in the world that is related to that question of my grandfather, which is, who are you singularly, young man, young woman, uh, young uh, transgender person? No matter where you are, think about who you are and what you think your work is and your effects in the world, and don't get attached to what it is that you're just trying to do in the world. That's what I mean. You, I caught something. You mentioned results versus effects. Yeah. I like that distinction. There's a middle one. You want all three? I would love all three of them. Okay. Please, Carol. So the other thing about goals is they're very close in. They're you know, like a touchdown at the end of a run on a, a soccer or football field. It's helpful if what you look at is beyond that. So I say there are three levels of being able to see how things unfold in the world. The first level is I do something, there's a result. That our senses can pick up, our metrics can pick up. Uh, we tend to define our lives based on this closing idea of the result. But every result also has an outcome. So if, for example, I am we're having a sales call, and what I'm doing is I have to get a certain uh, number of amount of sales, a percentage return. Those are results. But the outcome is beyond that. After people leave me, I may get uh, what my boss or even myself said as my result, my goals for results. But if I think about what was the outcome in terms of what I left behind that can't be measured, the relationship where it is that we can go next, what it is we can create as a result of having built that. Now, we don't think about that, and yet that's what really makes us great salespeople or uh, great parents. But there is also a third kind of uh, unfolding that's happening. So if in right. my sales call and my relationship, I get the outcome, I still have effects that are going to be unfolding, which I can't see. They're beyond me in terms of what is this person I was just with? What happens when they go home or they work with others or they work with other suppliers? I'm creating effects beyond my ability to see or know. And yet if I image for a while, I can see those and I will have a much richer life, a better company, and just uh, everything else will improve. So that's the three. Okay. That's, that's really, really interesting. So 
you also have something called the, I want to shift gears a little bit. You have something called the indirect work model. And what I'd like to do is just ask you to define this, define it and tell us about it. I, I find it fascinating in the notes you gave me. Okay. Um, Please allow me to change one word you use. It's an indirect work framework. And that matters okay. because models are templates and I'm telling you what to do. Frameworks are to improve your, improve your ability to think for yourself. Now, let's define what indirect means and why that questioning I have of that particular word needs to be questioned here. So I got this idea of indirect work from my fascination from when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley in studying a variety of quite famous people, uh, one with whom was Einstein. And I got to study with his students and the students of his students. Um, and Einstein told, a, a, well, first he has a phrase, which you probably have heard, which is, don't ever, if you're going to try and create improvement, don't use the same method or the same mind you use to get uh, to the problem we've got, because you'll just recreate it with a little more uh, decoration on it. You got to get a new mind and you get a new way of thinking. So what Einstein meant by that, and I know for sure that's true because he told uh, his class at Princeton, which included the head of my physics uh, class, that here's what he meant. He said, we, uh, the old mind that we tend to use is Newtonian. If you were in school, you sold Sir Isaac Newton, physics. Uh, he said, it's the mind that thinks of everything in life as a billiard ball game. Now, I think he meant pool because then he said, it's more like we think as humans, we get to define the pockets on the table. We get to name them, decide which ones are the right ones. We look at the table and we can see cue balls and we name who those people are. And we look at us and think we own the cue stick. And all we have to do is hit a ball toward a pocket we pre-chose, just like you know we're being a, a billiard ball or pool master. He said, that's actually not the way the world works. We don't get to decide for other people where they go. And the more we try and move them around to the pockets we choose, the less the world works. It's how we end up in war and conflict and uh, arguments with our spouse. But what you do want to do is take on a quantum theory. Now, you know, he's the father of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Now, what does that mean? It means it's more like a matrix. And it's hard to imagine a man doing this, but apparently he described that if you're a woman and you have a womb and there's a fetus being born and growing, you don't have much to say about where it goes, what it's like, whether or not it has five fingers and 10 toes and um, has organs at work and uh, has all of the things that you dream of having like a baby. That'd be the pool table, right? I pick what this baby looks like. Really, what you all you can do is nurture the womb. You can keep your body healthy. You can eat right. You can keep things uh, that are toxic away from it. And that baby chooses how it becomes, even when it will be born, how well all that will go. Most of the we outsiders are uh, standing by. 
It's a, once you get that idea that that's how the universe works, you're going to make everything work better because you'll understand when you move one thing, it moves 10 things. It moves 100 things, and those things move things. And so what we want to do is come back to working indirectly. The matrix model is the indirect model where I grow my children to be wise and think for themselves. I do the same for my employees. I do the same thing for my students if I'm in a classroom. Otherwise, I'm in the direct model of the pool table where I think I'm in charge and that I can make things happen. Did that translate? Yes. Yes, it did. Fabulous. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I and I also love how you understand the power of words. I was given information about an indirect, indirect work model, and you point out the importance of addressing it as a framework rather than a model. And it's the difference between the pool table and the matrix, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it may have been one of my PR team. They, they're constantly getting corrected by me. Well, luckily, they love me and they make things work. <laughs> well, certainly. And, you know, voicing is voicing somebody else and speaking on behalf of someone else. I know that I do a bit of that stuff as well. And you discover things as you go along. Now, you also have shared some strategies about growing the intelligence of your employees while simultaneously retaining their talent. So we're already dealing with some words here. Grow the intelligence of your employees <laughs> while simultaneously retaining their talent. Now, the practical effect is to make the plans of onboarding a thing of the past, but isn't this something, and notice I said effect rather than results. See, I'm learning. Right, I did and, know. Yep. And uh, now, this is kind of counterintuitive from what we still see in some organizations that fear developing their employees too much because, oh, well, we'll invest all this money in them and then I'll just go work for the competition. Yeah. Well, a um, couple of things about what you just said. First, I think we are stuck on the idea of retaining talent without understanding that the way you retain talent is develop and engage their intelligence. Plus, you will never have to hire anyone again if you engage the way I'd like to give you a short description on because Please do. everyone will be getting smarter every day, all the time, in growing the company and in growing the lives of the people who count on your company. So what that means is when I work with the company, it's over a few years. And uh, so we'll take something like uh, seventh generation. It's a fairly medium-sized company, which was bought by Unilever after uh, Jeffrey Hollander. And I got to be a part of this for about 10 years set out to develop the full a fullest version of intelligence, which meant people could think for themselves. They were able, we were actually able to do a, a fun experiment with the University of Vermont 
on testing IQs, not because we were trying to find out how smart people were at the moment classified, which is what they're usually used for, but instead we wanted people uh, who were the only ones who knew their IQ score, by the way, to continue over a few years looking at how they grew. Now, mostly this was knowledge testing, but they did a lot more of the abstract kind of intelligence for thinking, making decisions, and people watched themselves become smarter. And none of them wanted to leave because no one else anywhere they had ever applied or ever worked treated them as a growable process. And they were not only allowed, but uh, infrastructure we built for people to contribute included something I'll describe to you, but the name for it was Promises Beyond Ableness. That means we had no competitive hierarchies where people did something in order to get promoted. And there was a narrowing set of options as you went up some ladder. Instead, there was a flat uh, ladder in the sense that everyone could go to the top. And the way they did that was we had teams that were uh, wrapped around the marketplace, not around a line they ran or coding group they ran or a commodity sales group they managed. Instead, you were thinking about who it was that bought products, bought services from your organization. And every person, everyone, I don't care if there were, I don't remember any specific uh, janitors, but if we had, they wouldn't have been involved. If you were clerk uh, or receptionist, everyone was involved in thinking about how to transform the life of the, the lives of the people who bought from them. And they made promises to produce a transformational uh, experience for that customer. And I'll give you an example in a second uh, that they didn't yet know how to do. That's beyond ableness, right? But it was to serve something amazing. This was the method by which we grew people. Plus we had uh, monthly sessions where we were building critical thinking skills, personal development, management. But all of these people, why would they go anywhere? A few, when uh, one company, the uh, president of a subgroup, uh, in this was Kingsford Charcoal Clorox, he left and they undid what we had done. And a lot of people had to leave. I have never gotten so many letters in my life about how miserable they were because there was nowhere they could work and have their intelligence not only appreciated, but grown and not compared to other people, open for them to create amazing things. So I'll pause for a moment, find out what you're doing with all this and what would be useful to share. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly with you on all of that. And I think that, again, what, I love about our conversation, what we're having here is it really just comes down to again and again and again, I'm seeing this theme of simply looking carefully at the meaning of words and how we shift those. It'd be, yeah. It's probably, it's probably going to be my lesson of the, uh, of the month <laughs> results versus effects and model versus framework. <laughs> 
And also hierarchy versus everyone uh, can be at the non-competitive hierarchy. Whoever heard of that? Um, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Carol. Hierarchy versus what? Non-competitive hierarchies. Okay. Usually hierarchies mean by definition, everyone climbs to the top and only a few make it, right? Uh-huh. In this case, we build where everyone is equal and everyone can make it to the top. There's no limited number of people at the top. And when you think about the power of having intelligence grown, everyone doing something so that it is beyond anything the company knew it could take on, like uh, we had uh, in Colgate Palmolive in South Africa, we had a young man, Isaac Michiel, who decided he wanted to uh, he, he actually was a detergent tower operator when he started and ended up leading a whole unit. But what he wanted was to create a whole different idea about how townships manage oral health. Now that's Colgate's bailiwick, right? Yes. So Isaac promised to improve oral health and the advocacy of the entire uh, Soweto and Alexandria township while improving the small business uh, uh, generation for women there selling and educating products. He was able to grow the product uh, value to the company 35 to some uh, 60% in less than a year in revenue growth. But he also had uh, the leadership of the township councils uh, speaking on behalf of Colgate, what it was doing for the company, uh, it became a, uh, a way that Isaac climbed to the top. Now, he was one of 3,000 employees, all of whom created a promise beyond able, just like this one. And there are many details I'm leaving out here. Yeah. Imagine 3,000 people committing to something like that for a client. And Making and of course, they sold their products as a part of this. They did some of them at discounts. But if you can have 3,000 people building their and Isaac was had not been allowed to go to school in South Africa, but he made this commitment and he learned he went to school of his own making and of uh, the company helping him, and again. All 3,000 employees did something like that. That's a non-hierarchical way of growing people who can go to the top. Yeah. In my experiences, in my corporate journey, which lasted for about five years before I became a full-bore entrepreneur, my experiences with hierarchies were that uh, they were not only competitive, but oppressive. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and of course, nothing I've told you was oppressive because no one was judging. No one approved Isaac's uh, idea, except in a hierarchical world, there were what we called market field teams who really knew the market. And if they acted as venture capitalists internally and as developers, when Isaac and or anyone had an idea, they went to this uh, field team, talked about what they knew about the township, what they knew about uh, what was needed, what would change the culture, what would change the field of uh, buying. And um, 
they were able to get the kind of work and help they needed to put together their own plan, evaluate their plan, move along. So the oppressive pieces of the hierarchy uh, were gone because that's usually someone else making all the decision. And your evaluation, your approval, your ability to move forward, whether you get to stay, all that was gone. And again, I, I've written this story in several of my books and Celio Sesos, who was the GM uh, for this area, has told it many times. So there are details that people want to see more of how we did some of this. Yeah, certainly. Now, you've, uh, since, what I love, again, about what you do is how you define words and define terms. You are a wealth of this phenomenon. We've covered indirect work. We've looked at abandoning your goals. And you have a couple other titles that I find very interesting as well. Uh, One of which is the regenerative life and the regenerative business. So I'd love to hear you identify what you mean by regenerative and how it applies to business and life. All right. Regenerative is a term I learned a version of from my grandfather. And it is really about uh, Einstein's way of working. So my grandfather always said, uh, you have to see the world as alive. And that came partly from being raised as a, a young Mohawk man in the culture where no one was expected to try and get ahead of anyone else. Everyone was expected to be who they were, their singularity, their essence, and to bring that out into the world and what they did. So the way I learned about regeneration was watching how who I was got regenerated in every event my grandfather and I did, whether it was going to market and building sand or whether it was raising pigs. He was always talking about come back to your essence. That is core to the idea of regeneration. It literally means to start with the uh, emotional and intellectual and physical DNA of an individual and help it blossom, help it thrive, help it grow, and to build the capacity. So I use six words to define regeneration. The first two are evolved capacity. So rather than do something to them, be a cue stick on a cue ball toward the table, rather than uh, try and put them in the pocket. I want them in. I evolve their capacity, which is what I did with Colgate and Google and everybody else I work with, is you build capability for them to figure out where they're going to express, and these are the next two words, express essence. So evolve capability to do essence expression. And the third part of regeneration is so a system grows, system actualization, not just self. When you do that, you change the whole world. You don't do it for yourself in your self-centered way. So Isaac was looking at the women in the townships, helping he brought in uh, a dentist and uh, uh, school teachers, a variety of people who built the capacity of the women who were in Soweto, particularly we started with, and their ability to run a business, uh, learn how to educate all the other family members, and in such a way that every child and eventually every adult had uh, uh, oral health. And that was the system. Soweto and all of the 
uh, members there were to grow and be who they were, not for somebody to come in and do a needs assessment and decide what those people need and do it for them. No, he wanted them to be able to express their own essence in the world. And he set up a project that built the capability with all the help and supported them pulling off what they were doing. That's what regeneration means, evolve capacity to express essence and have a system regenerated. And that can be a whole life shed too, not just uh, one township. Wow, That's, that, is certainly, that is certainly something here. And here's another one. I, I'm not sure if you're looking to be contrarian or looking to use provocation marketing or <laughs> what's going on here, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up No More Feedback as the author of one of your books. Yeah. No more feedback. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about it. I mean, I, I, and I'm, and I'm the guy that says that the last thing you need or want in your business is traffic to your website. If you have to get rid of it. And I also say that getting listeners and downloads for your podcast is complete and utter bullshit that will sink your podcast faster than the mutant rats sink the Lubavo or Loba. (laughs) I mean, uh, so you and I, I think, are on similar paths here, but I got to I got to see where you're going with this. Well, I think we are. I love how you describe your way of seeing things. All right. So feedback is a term that was borrowed by psychology in the 1960s to make themselves look like they were scientists, like they were um natural science, like physicists or something. And it was borrowed from manufacturing, which is uh, has a valve. You know, many things have fluid. They can be hot or steam, and you have to be able to control them. So they could put governors on them. And the governors are all function based on something tripping and triggering something being closed or shut in order to make it safe. So The idea of feedback was to do it for a system when you thought it was about to produce trouble. Now, they took that term, and I wrote about this in uh, No More Feedback, where I did all the research on where this term came from. And the psychologists literally were giving uh, what they thought was permission and ableness to shut other people down. And if you've ever been in a process where you were given feedback, you know that the experiences of being shut down and the yep. uh, research shows that people lose their way. They lose their ability to trust themselves. Now, that was the 1960s, but that started in, the ni- in 1903 when behavioral psychology wanted to control the world and make a name for themselves. And my book that will be out in 2023 documents all this. And what they did was say, we have to convince people they can't think for themselves. They need experts. And they did this with teachers, with the military, with businesses, with parents. They made them think they had to have psychologists and you have to have experts and you had to have uh, certification. And that whole process of having one group certify another and set up feedback so that, the, and I had it happen to me. I learned uh, a couple of times when I was becoming a professor in a university in California, the first thing they did after I'd been there a year was gave me 
360-degree feedback. And it was devastating. I was seen as not a good teacher. Now, you need to know, my students love me, <laughs> right? They thought I was, uh, uh, and they pointed this out, that my students were being tricked into, into thinking and not learning. Now, can you imagine? Anyway, I decided I want, didn't want to be a professor there because feedback is designed to shut down your opinion or thinking, your own self-observing. And you notice when I described what we did in South Africa, the evaluation was not from outside, but from you learning to assess yourself and your progress and what you were learning and come to trust yourself. Uh, and I've done this with children and teachers, how to teach children to trust themselves again, parents, because feedback is systematically undermining people's not only belief in themselves, but they're increasingly disbelieving they can their own thinking. And we wonder why democracy has trouble, right? If I can't think for myself, I have to get somebody else's opinion, even if they're slightly insane. If they look like uh, what I want people to look like and say what I want, I won't think for myself. So I'm very worried about that. Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of quote unquote feedback. And I can tell you, how many times I felt like it was used in an attempt to silence me. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, when I look at feedback, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, the word feedback to me is barely half a step from gaslighting in many cases. Yeah. Because what is, what is feedback? You know, if I, you know, if I were to, let's say that we're back in the days we had the AM FM radio with the uh, rotating dials. And I go to a, a station that's not picking up and I get static. That's feedback. Yeah. If I leave my, if I leave two microphones right next to each other and they're both coming through my Zoom channel at the same time and they're echoing off each other, creating that sound, that's yeah. feedback. That is an appropriate use of feedback because it's a machine helping manage another one. It yeah. is not appropriate to transfer it to a human being and have one human be able to manage and shut down another. That's what my book, and plus I give a much better way to work on it. Um, when we go, I go into a company and I'm working on developing capability, right? Evolving capacity. People learn to see themselves because the biggest argument people use to give me and thank you for not doing this is that we say, but people can't see themselves. We are so conditioned that we think we can't. The second most often comment is, but I learned so much about myself from my feedback. And of course, most of it isn't even true. Uh, Psychology Today my magazine did a survey and um, well, they did more than a survey. They published a research a project that showed that people eventually agreed that most of what they said to other people really belonged to them and they couldn't see it in themselves. And it took uh, quite a while to come to understand they were projecting their own fears or worries or uh, concerns, whatever was going on. So all those people who said people can't think for themselves and you learn something from feedback, probably were learning something that wasn't even true. And so we're back to my grandfather's story. Know who you are. Find your essence. 
that gets obliterated with feedback. Whereas if you teach people how to observe themselves, how to see their own effects, their own outcomes, their own even immediate results, they can learn to be self-managing. Now that's talent because you no longer have people who are following you like a parrot or following a template of some kind because they're going to be degraded by someone else. We now have living, thinking, breathing, present humans, and that's the kind of people we want to be around. Yeah, I'm so glad we're able to have this conversation for this reason, in addition to all the others. But this is the thing that I really wanted to get to, and I'm so glad we've had the time to do it, is to expose how feedback, to me, is a vehicle for oppression and silencing of voices. It's uh, what is used in uh, tyrannical authoritarian. I had a few months ago, the first time in a very long time, the experience of someone doing that to me who was, I was trying to buy something from. It was a program, a health program. I was looking at how I can get healthy. As an old lady, you know, how it is like, can do things right. And I was um, very disturbed by what he was um, offering and the way he was saying it. And I, I've, you can hear I'm pretty direct. I say what I think. And he said, well, you're really angry. I said, no, I'm not angry. Actually, if anything, I'd say I'm afraid, which is why I'm asking you about how this program would work whether that actually helped me, whether it make me worse on things I'm trying to get better on. He said, no, you're angry. I can hear your anger. I can hear you wanting me to go away. I said, what? Where are you going? Well, that's a bullying tactic. I yeah. somehow triggered this guy. I must have reminded him of his mother or some bad boss. But I thought, wow, <laughs> that's what feedback, how it actually works in fields. And I people don't try and give me feedback. They know better. But we in our society use this bullying, e.g. feedback, in a way that undermines people uh, growing, seeing, thinking for themselves, becoming great. And once you, it, this is the real problem, uh, Adam, which is once I don't trust myself, I have to find somebody else to trust. Because if I don't trust myself, I will be insane in the world. I can't make sense of things. I can't figure out why this is happening, why that war, why this vaccine, why this job. All of those things I don't trust me, I have to find someone. And I call that the wanderers. And they kind of wander around looking for where can I get what I need? Well, if I keep wandering, I will find a, a group of lunatics who've got some uh, crazy story or fake news, wherever you are on that subject, you can end up with people who adhere to and don't think for themselves. And then we're on our way to a democracy that doesn't work. All the work I work on now, I'm turning toward showing people that the way we've structured business specifically, but also schools and much of our parenting ideas, our churches and our military is undermining people thinking for themselves instead of, and instead they insert experts, the cue stick holders on the pool table, right? And those people 
become lost and wandering in the wilderness. We need to give people back critical thinking skills, back the ability to think for themselves, encourage, grown, shown how to do that. That's not even required in the U.S. When the public schools were mandated in 1920, they did not mandate learning to think. The only thing they mandated was core knowledge that would be transferred from a, quote, expert and then tested on it. That's all that's required. We're in a mess. Yeah, if you want to talk about the educational system, you know, I I think I discovered intelligence once I unlearned all that crap they handed me in school. Yep. And I and I also say this, I don't want to go down too far down the road of religion, but I've said a lot many times. Uh, I I view myself as Christian. I I place a very high value on my relationship with with Jesus as my savior. Yeah. And I have said thousands of times that I had to disassociate from organized religion in order to meet Jesus. <laughs> and yeah. once I met him, I discovered he was there all along. There were just all this man-made crap in a way that I wasn't seeing him. Yeah, we we do this crazy thing to one another where uh, we insert experts. We insert uh, other people who will know better to help us. Uh, get the right answer and to evaluate us. And uh, I I am working like crazy. I run programs for parents to learn to help their children. Your children will discover their own faith, their way of seeing the world, but it will be deep. Uh, and they also will not be subject to peer pressure. The biggest concern I have about, you know, even my own grandchildren is because we are constantly indoctrinating our children, they don't know how to think for themselves. And they uh, are at the uh, young age, and until they're 12 or so, if we're lucky, they uh, still are paying attention to the values, the way of thinking, the way of working in a family. But most of it's unexamined. Most of not helping a child think about why, or where does that come from, or what do they think about it? So, when they reject their parents, which most kids do at some point, like 99%, uh, they won't have the skills to assess. And so the next influencer, which is often a group of peers who may or may not have um, good critical thinking skills, the odds are good they don't, they will, because they want to belong, swing uh, into that group and maybe given bad advice and end up in a challenge. Sometimes kids get pulled toward being super smart, doing well in school, and they get pulled in that direction, but not always. So getting us past this idea that we can teach our children in home and school how to think, or what, sorry, what to think will protect them is no longer even possible given the world we live in, the, the media, the internet, they will find something else. And if they don't have discernment, they don't have the capacity for thinking, which we no longer build, right, anywhere, uh, then, you know, heaven help us. Yeah. I, Carol, it's all these damn millennials' fault. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, these 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 freaking millennials. We had a good thing going until they came with their laziness and their whining. I, pause. Yeah, I don't. All right, believe, here's yeah. 
here's what folks miss about the quote-unquote millennials. And basically, that's a generic term that's used to define everybody who's younger than who's age 42 and younger at this point. Although there are at least three generations that have already followed the millennials. I myself came along three years before millennials. So I'm at the tail end of Gen X. Yeah. Your millennial is the first generation who grew up with access to the internet, who grew up with access to more than two television channels that were picked up using rabbit ears or some contraption screwed to the roof. Right. They had internet. They had cable television. They were around when the internet could be accessed through the cable. They had email. They had the ability to search for things on search engines and have results returned to them. When they entered their early adult productive years, they acquired the ability to disseminate information through social media using technology, including blogs, webcams, and microphones. Therefore, they are the first generation that was equipped to identify, discern, and challenge the generational patterns that had been foisted upon them by the generation before them, which in turn was foisted by the generation before them, and so on and so forth and so forth. It's not by accident that studies of things like resonance repatterning, generational patterns, the term breaking the cycle, have become major themes in the past 10 years. Yeah, well, I agree with everything you said except one thing. Oh, and please tell me where I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you messed up. I think it's an incomplete thought. Um, I do believe all of what you said, the opportunity. I have a grandson who's 22, uh, and so I watch him and his parents who are where you are. Um, I have watched them have access to all this and you use the word discernment. Discernment to me means you actually can differentiate and really see why and how and where things came from, not just the difference. But I do think, uh, I tell I meet with my grandson as soon as we're off here. And my work, even though he graduated in honors, top of his class, uh, could have had any job he wanted, he felt, he said, Grandma, you're the only one here who makes me think. Well, his parents do too. But he said, I don't know how to make sense out of the world. I'm out here. I'm a, an adult. Uh, and I learned how to memorize, how to problem solve, how to uh, follow something and write a re- research paper, how to define very complex Mathematically, as an, another a minor, I think it's in math, but he's a math genius. He said, but I don't know how to make sense out of politics, out of families, out of my friends and what they think about. And so we spend time and uh, I'm, I dedicated my last book or one before, I think, to millennials uh, and their ability to uh, disrupt and ask questions. What we have to do, however, and the thing I thought was a little incomplete from what you said was give them the skills to make sense of the world because they can feel something's wrong. Like my grandson said, 
I can I can feel that I don't know how to make sense of things, and yeah. I get bored trying to figure it out. But we have to build, rebuild the infrastructure, schools, parenting, businesses, uh, churches, uh, military, and any institution that is primarily founded in the early 20th century all had the idea that what somebody else would decide for you and teach you. We got to get rid of that and rebuild the living systems, critical thinking skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I look back at some of the information that I was given, particularly as an adolescent, uh, I was outright lied to about certain things. I'm not going to go into the details of what they were, but let's just say if I hadn't been lied to, I wouldn't have been exposed to situations that turned out to be very harmful for me. Right. And it's simply because I, even though I suspected that something was a little bit off here, because I was, I was seeing contradictions, although I couldn't quite try and push the two polar opposites together to watch them repel each other. You know, like you do if you play with magnets and you mess with the polarity. It's like I knew it was there, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And since I didn't have access to the internet, I didn't have the ability to search. I tried the library and the library's information was kind of dated on this. And some of the folks who I should have been able to count on to give me the straight story on this were those perpetrating lies, outright lies, when they knew that there was actually another set of facts that they weren't sharing because it would have been disadvantageous to them. You know, you're describing. A perp- I think. I, I think. I think you. I think you figured out. I tried. I tried to escape so-called high school a year early. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Um, I. Uh, think you're giving a perfect example with your own personal life of the difference between Einstein's idea of a pool table and a matrix. The pool table is your parents, probably grandparents and the whole family, to find the pocket you were supposed to know about and not told you about the others and lied to you about the pockets and what they did and which ones you were allowed to go to. And they were the handlers of the cue stick moving you around. Uh-huh. And uh, what what we have to, I mean, Einstein is right. We can't uh, redefine what I, I redefined the, some of the pockets for my own kids because I didn't like how I was raised just like you didn't in a lot of cases. So getting over the idea that we're in charge of other people's lives, even as parents, we think that we want to instill, that's a word often used, right? Instill or instill, yes. Right. The right values and the things they pay attention to. Einstein pointed out how often you and I are examples of this. Don't follow the pockets. We eventually figured out and we go off in a ricocheting way. I I did had some of the same things where I you know, learn some few things the hard way. Luckily, uh, not a final learning. I was able to, you know, have a, a whole life and uh, still have had a magnificent life. But when parents or school teachers or whoever decides they are in charge of my life and they're trying to in, in, indoctrinate, inculcate, they take away 
my own ability to learn and think and use the God-given capabilities that I have and to develop them further and to make use in the world. And then I won't try and do that to somebody else, like my own children. Learning that all I can do is evolve the capacity of the matrix for the baby and not be trying to poke around and think I'm in charge of making the baby a certain way. It's right. one of the worst things we were ever taught you. And that we're back now to abandon your goals because goals are a pool table metaphor, not uh-huh. a metaphor. Yeah. I agree with you a thousand percent. And it's, it's interesting how we've come full circle just as we're getting ready to wrap up here. Oh right. yeah. And I, and I love your redefinition of things. So going back to when we were discussing at first, the whole thing about abandoning your goals, results versus effects. Right. I mean, I mean, just to wrap up here, how many times have we attempted something in the hopes of attaining a result? only to discover that the result that we were aiming for is so rarely what we achieved, allowing for the fact that the results that we did achieve may have been even better or something that we weren't anticipating that turned out to be good. That said, how often did these results get impacted by effects around them? which is why I loved your distinction. So results versus effects, model versus framework, hierarchy versus non-competitive hierarchy. We can go on and on and on. But what I want to do now is what we've done over the past hours, we've essentially touched on several of your books, which I'm going to have to pick up and read myself. I can't wait. Great. If our listeners can visit your website at carolsanford.com. That's carol, S-A-N-F-O-R-D.com. Check that out, and you can discover so many different things. There's resources. uh, There are books. uh, There's a podcast, which runs, I think, isn't it, what, like once once a month, something like that? Twice. Twice a month. Twice a month. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to have to subscribe to that and check it out myself. So, again, go to carolsanford.com. And I promise you, and it's not very often I promise anything, but if you got any sense from this conversation, I can actually promise you, you're going to find something else that is going to at least make you pause and think, huh, I never thought of it that way before. And that could lead to a new aha moment. That is your mastermind moment. With that, Carol Sanford, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor, believe me, in education. Well, Adam, I've enjoyed so much engaging with you, and I look forward to finding a way to do that again. Thank you. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.